Welcome to Dreams, Dilemmas, and Dialogues in Liberatory School Mental Health. My name is Candice Valenzuela. I'm a parent, educator, healer, therapist, and community justice advocate. I have been working in the fields of education and mental health for 16 years, and I'm so honored to be one of your hosts for our podcast. My name is Oriana Ides. I'm a mother, daughter, and sister deeply committed to healing and wholeness. I've worked with young people and families from elementary school to college and have served as a teacher leader, school counselor, classroom educator, and program director for the last two decades. I believe healing the wounds of trauma and oppression are vital in our journey towards liberation. Our hope is that these dialogues promote creativity, community empowerment, and culturally sustaining practices and transformation. This is a space where we boldly face the dilemmas and challenges that arise when supporting youth wellness in schools. Welcome to Dreams, Dilemmas, and Dialogues in Liberatory School Mental Health. I'm so happy to be here with you, Ori, and so grateful that um, we get to do this together. <laughs> um, just to like bring us in today, I'm wondering what's bringing you joy in your life right now. There's so many things that are bringing me joy right now when I stop to think about it. And that's important for me to acknowledge because I am not looking at the world through a lens of joy. I'm feeling really um, sad and overwhelmed at the state of the world and things that are happening. And so I appreciate this question and the sunshine and water bringing me joy. Um, my children are bringing me joy meaningful connection with, with like-minded folk that really encourage me to think beyond. Um, also brings me a lot of joy. How, how about you? What's, what's bringing you joy? Thank you for sharing that. Um, especially just that duality that we're always holding around being people who are really connected to a lot of the suffering in the world and like what isn't working and needing to be able to perceive that while also like be able to perceive joy and the things that are beautiful in our lives. Um, for me, at this time of year, it's always my garden. Yeah. Every morning I have to go out um, before the sun gets too hot and I water and I check on things. And usually that turns into 30 minutes to an hour, sometimes two hours of gardening, depending on how early I'm out there or um, what's going on in um, it is a real source of um, calm, like my nervous system really regulates when I see the green and I, um, I'm i just outside and breathing the fresh morning air and hearing the birds singing. And then I feel like I get a lot of my deepest lessons from the garden when I see what's going on in there. And um, there's always something, <laughs> there's insects that are, you know, helping and then some of them were like eating the plants and just that reminder for me is always like, um, we have hopes, we have dreams, we have visions, um, and some of it will come to fruit. Um, but some of it won't. And the, there's just a process of like letting go for me every day. That is like, do the work because it feels good. And because it matters while having some ability to like be in impermanence and be like, also, and that doesn't mean I'm going to get the exact results. Nature will have its way in the garden and in my life. <laughs> and then what comes to be of that um, is 
usually different than what I set out, but also still amazing and beautiful. Such an important like lesson, the like detachment from outcome while still being very committed to it. Right. And I just feel like to me, that's probably one of my top frames in this work is like detachment from outcome without detachment from care. And it also doesn't mean you don't care. Like you still hope for the best, you know, (laughs) and something beautiful does come. It just won't be what you necessarily, (laughs) you know. There's so many parallels to our work in education as I'm thinking like each plant has its own destiny and journey. And um, we connect along journeys to um, participate in the, the growing Rather than this kind of framing of I'm coming to plant and grow and it's, you know, because of me that that this tomato can become. I don't know that every gardener necessarily has that approach. Um, I'm definitely see myself as a collaborator in my garden, not a mastermind at all. I'm not in control at all, (laughs) at all. And especially here in Colorado, I'm phoning in from Denver, Colorado, and like it's... um, the seasons are very intense and there's a lot of extremes. So you can't even pretend like you have control. <laughs> and then like, you know, this also connects to um, my story in the work of school-based mental health is that um, I'm also a rebel and a rogue. So I don't listen to those things. I know that people say those things. I'm aware. So I'm like, not like I'm not taking the information. I'm like, okay, I'm aware. And I'm going to like try to figure it out and see where there's room to push the edges and what we can put into our young people in our communities when things are good so that when the storm hits and it will, right? How have we been fortified? How are we fortifying ourselves, our children, our communities, our teachers, our counselors, so that they can withstand these storms that are coming into education? Um, Whereas I think, unfortunately, Often the case is that we wait until something has happened and there's a reactivity there and we're trying to repair after damage has already been done. Absolutely. That's been such a important learning and reflection for me that it's not about the moment of crisis or directly after a crisis. Like, sure, there are really important things that we should do um, in and, you know, right after a crisis. We're living in a world right now with so much crisis, um, but it it really is about the the intentional community building and the ways that you're tending to a, a community before um, something you know catastrophic happens. And it's all of those inter- internalized, already developed practices that really help and sustain a community. Um, a person, uh, ecosystem in crisis. And so I have to take a step back, I think, and and look at, you know, the ways that we are being, um, becoming and, and what's normalized within a community. That's such a a deep point. And yeah, I guess that I could (laughs) literally talk forever about this. Um, Because I feel like there's also a world, and this is not what we see most often, and I think it's a little dangerous to say this, but there is a world where sometimes struggle can actually make 
community stronger. Um, and I say it's dangerous though, because I think if that's the expectation, you can cause a lot of harm, right? Like people shouldn't be forced to, there's a world where, um, I think in a long time in like parenting discourse and education discourse, it was like, um, you know, just, just tough it out. Right. And we still see the impact of that narrative with, uh, within our field where there's so much burnout and, um, people don't feel like they have the space to like self-care, right. Um, or do community care. Um, and so if it, if it's forced where you're like, you just got to tough it out, you, this will make you stronger. What doesn't kill you, make you stronger. I think that's harmful when it's forced. Right. So I want to be clear that that's not what I mean. <laughs> um, but there's this, there's this duality, which come is part of the theme of this podcast is like holding dualities in our field. Um, and hold in being big enough to hold that expansive view and not needing to shrink our experience or our narratives into one or the other. Right. But there's a world where, um, when that nutriment has been there and people have been, um, nourished and there's community, um, network, like you're saying, and there's, um, personal practices, but also community practices for how people come together. And that has been really, um, cultivated, right. When, um, hard things happen, those communities are better able to, um, to respond. And if they're able to hold each other through it, I've very much seen, um, small communities that actually come out stronger. Um, and the harm is there, you know, but there's a, it's a buffer for trauma. It's a form of resiliency and people can even come out of that very, very changed. And I actually want to move into talking about kind of like how we came into the work and how it leads us to this podcast. If it's okay, I can tell a little story that I think kind of answers that for me. When I was teaching in 2010 in Fremont High School, so before I became a counselor, I'm currently a therapist. And prior to that, I spent 10 years as a high school educator working in East Oakland. And one of those years, you know, like so many years, unfortunately, we lost a student to gun violence and it was really tragic. And I take very meticulous joy and hard work into building the community in my classroom, period, right? Because I, before I was a teacher, I was a system impacted black and brown youth myself, right? And so when I came into the classroom, I had an embodied knowledge that whether or not there's like a crisis you can see, um, we're all coming into this space from legacies of um, systemic violence and intergenerational trauma. Like that's my perception of classroom is that that's already in the room <laughs> before anything happens. And so I felt like it was really important for me to be able to do any teaching um, was that we did have a strong connected um, community of learners. And I spent so much time cultivating that. So I was kind of doing that work and I was in at that school in charge of like um, the senior project for the whole graduating class. And we were a small school. So it was my classroom, but it was also, um, it was a whole community of graduating seniors, basically, that I was interfacing with. So he had done all that work and had really close relationships and, um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was a, a relatively safe space. So then when this trauma happened, because those linkages has, had already been created, the young people trusted me um, to to lead them in a process. And so I really stepped in 
and advocated um, with, alongside, and for the children for there to be different um, moments where we were coming together um, to process or not even just process, but like feel and share around what happened. Um, we created like community rituals together. Um, it was just an ongoing process of, of leaning into the community um, rather than sometimes when these scary things happen, there can be a way that sometimes we can lean out, especially if like the trauma is too intense and it surpasses the existing like coping mechanisms, then you're going to see much more like dissociating and like pulling away and self-isolating. Right. But because some of those foundations were there, um, we really all, all leaned in, you know, in East Oakland, the graduation rates at that time were always pretty low. We had a really abysmal um, rate at which we were graduating seniors and that year of all the students who entered the class with me, um, we had the highest percentage who actually finished and graduated. It was, first of all, transformative for me, um, but it was such a huge learning around what's possible, right? How could that be? Like they, they faced, they lost one of their cohort members, right? It was like literally one of the hardest things that could have happened to that group. Um, but in the ways that we leaned together and supported one another through it, they actually graduated at a higher rate than the other seniors who hadn't had a traumatic event happen to them as a group. And I'm still in contact with a lot of those seniors who are now like entering their thirties. <laughs> so this is an experience of like one of my, there were many, but one of the transformative moments I had as a teacher who centered wellness, mental health, culture, and community in my classroom and saw a little bit of what was possible. And honestly, the healing that those young people experienced, obviously it doesn't take away, you know, what happened or the overall struggles in their lives. And I don't, I don't want to overstate that, but, but I do feel confident that we taught skills, right. And built neural networks and new visions for what um, what's possible and that they were able to take that into their lives. And many of them have communicated that to me over the years. This was a transformative experience. And one of many that sparked my curiosity to um, eventually become a therapist and continue um, sharing knowledge and wisdom and learning at the intersections of education and mental health in our region. I mean, that's a beautiful story and really no surprise to me that the community was, um, you know, found strength in in each other through uh, such a traumatic experience. And we know that on an individual level that the, you know, experiences can be traumatizing, but what the most protective factors are, the way that we're able to feel seen and heard after the experience. And so you being able to create such a, a beautiful humanizing community within your school space um, undoubtedly supported their moving through and sense-making and healing through such a significant loss. Um, we see that um, individual level and within communities. Yeah, I'm grateful to have have stories like that as well. Um, I've been in communities that have not been strengthened after loss and, and I'm fortunate to have also been in communities where I've seen tremendous growth and love and connection being built in the face of 
of loss. Um, I can share a little bit about my origin story or what brought me um, into this work. And I heard you mention briefly your experience as a young person in the system of schooling. And um, I think that is largely what um, brought me into um, education as a a student myself who felt very unseen, unsupported, um, and then uh, losing many of my loved ones as a teenager to gun violence, to addiction, to death by suicide, incarceration. Um, I became a, a parent at a kind of young age, um, but I also was already um would say pretty active in my community and organizing um, against different initiatives that were impacting myself and and my peers, um, youth curfew um, and uh, propositions that uh, criminalized young people, young people of color, immigrants. And, um, and so when I had my son, I really wanted to stay committed to young people and and families. And I was so fortunate to find this work as a peer resource coordinator in a small high school. And um, I think that really laid a foundation for the way I approached teaching and the way I approached my work as a therapist um, to enter into work um, as a peer resource coordinator where I supported young people in identifying the most pressing issues in their lives and then a solution finding together Um, and then giving them the space, the resource to um, try different things out to to impact the issues, impacting them um, in their communities, within our school and like even internally. And so um, as I uh, became a classroom teacher of English and health, and a college access coordinator. Um, it was really starting with the young person's um, needs and not assuming um, what it was that they needed. Um, that, that has been tremendous and uh, a strong orientation to the work that that I do. And I just think it's so important that you're here and that people like you are here in the work who can um, speak to it from a place of lived experience. But I love how. Um, you said you never assume what the young people need. And I think that's such a critical distinction because I've also seen it where that can be, I think, a folly sometimes of when you come from a related experience to your population, that sometimes I see folks that we can overstate our understanding or project, not realize that we're projecting um, from our experiences on the young people. And so um, sometimes I think about you know, if you're working with youth in public schools, um, there's like different um, ways that different identities will need to to grow to meet that work. Um, and I think it is rightfully elevated that there need to be more, you know, black and brown, queer and trans um, and women teachers and professionals in school mental health. Um but the existing standard is that um, for so long, the prevailing um, narrative of who does that work is not actually us. And a lot of the training, like teacher training, 
and therapist training is often geared towards white professionals. And so it creates, I think, another dilemma where we want to be recruiting and bringing in more folks like us into the work, but the training apparatus is not actually ready for us and prepared to support us. And so I think, you know, there's a process of like, I think often, you know, white therapists and educators needing to unpack their whiteness and um, expand their views of the world and build deeper empathy for um, marginalized um, experiences. Um, And then there isn't a lot of like, I think, um, conversation or discourse around how are we supporting therapists and teachers of color who also come from like either working class or um, even below um, backgrounds into the work, which I feel like you and I, I come from, and I feel like sometimes we're left to like figure it out on our own. <laughs> and a lot of us do really good work, but I think it's, it's, it's often just uh, um, a blank spot, you know, that just because you're a person of color or have various marginalized, marginalized identities doesn't inherently mean that you're going to know how to serve the population well right? Like there's gifts that you bring in, but we all need support and training. And I feel like that last piece that you shared was just so important around like being able to tap into our lived experience and our wisdom and what that brings while not projecting onto the youth and really listening to them. My mind is (laughs) going in so many different directions. I mean, speaking about my my journey as an educator and then as a school-based therapist, it was not easy. And definitely not conventional. And I needed to figure out alternative ways because the system's not designed to support someone like me. Um, I got my BA um, whilst I was teaching and that was just so fortunate to be able to have done that, to found find a, an institution that was trying to do something or a you know, small school within an institution that was trying to do something very different and that saw my value um, as someone that grew up in the community that we were building a school in. And they, you know, as a took my son with me to classes um, and then was, you know, put a lot of thought into trying to figure out how to get my credential after the BA. And, um, and then also a going back to school to become a, a therapist, you know, that road has been so difficult and it's not designed for, for us. Um, I don't feel like it was designed for me at all to, to engage in those, um, credentials or to, to acquire those credentials. And so, um, I just want to echo what you're saying, how important it is that we're in these spaces. And then also you, you mentioned, um, like how important it is for um, Black people and people of color, Indigenous folks, queer and trans folks to be in um, these positions, but that we also have a lot of learning to do from our students. And we can't just, um, you know, assume because I have lived experience similar to um, the people I'm working with that I know what they need. Um, there, there's definitely an element uh, of of knowledge for sure that is incredibly important. And uh, it took some learning for me in the position to be like, oh, wait, no, growing up in the 90s is very different than growing up 2008 or 2016. And um, oh, in 2022, I, you know, um, 
I, I think that we need to, uh, I think it's a value system that we must um, grow or operate from when we see our young people as um, valuable vessels of, of wisdom and knowledge as well. And that the, um, I don't see that in a lot of school spaces. There's definitely very, not enough. No. <laughs> so many beautiful gems in like what you're sharing, but there's two things I think that I'm pulling out that I uh, would love to explore more. Um, you mentioned values. And so I think that that's important to presence. Um, what are our values and frameworks that we're um, um, holding within this podcast as we um, discuss different dualities and dilemmas in various discourses in, in education and school mental health? Um, what are the values and frameworks that we're entering at it? Right, I think a lot of that can be seen through the stories we tell, but I think a um, part of for me, like modeling best practices in our work um, is broaching identities and being forthright about um, our positionality and our stances and where we're coming from. I think of that as a best practice. It's not always popular. I, there's a whole segment of people who want to say that education is not political, right? Or that mental health is not political. And I would say to those people that that is an ahistorical <laughs> viewpoint. Education and mental health have never not been political. Um, and everything has a political impact and uh, origin. And so for me, the best way to navigate is to be really forthright and honest about it. Um, so I'm wondering like how you would how you describe your own social identities and what frameworks um, or values explicitly that you bring to this discourse. I feel incredibly uh, fortunate to have grown up in San Francisco's mission district in the nineties, um, early nineties. And I feel heavily shaped by my environment. Uh, birth to Shefali Ides, my mother. Um, she raised me on her own in San Francisco, California. Um, and she is an immigrant to this country. I identify as the daughter of an immigrant, um, South Asian, but also very disconnected from my um, culture of origin. I have not had the um, the opportunity to learn um cultural practices and um, ways of being and values because um, she was, because of colonization, um, raised in an orphanage and adopted by uh, Americans. And so I um, identify as a child that is deeply, heavily affected by incarceration. It's part of my origin story and I'm still struggling through that, uh, impacts of that as a, a, a woman and a single mother, a young mother, um, definitely shaped my uh, ways of being in the world and seeing the world and my uh, orientation as an educator and as a practitioner. I, uh, this is not necessarily a, a framework, but I deeply believe that it is our birthright to be whole and safe. Um, and that is a really important um, way of operating um, in in the world that I 
um, holds holds true. And I think the frameworks of of ethnic studies um, have definitely supported me in centering our stories and creating space for young people, for people of color, for for folks that are historically targeted to take up more space, um, to be uh, truer and fuller versions of themselves. And I've been so fortunate to um, have the classroom as a container for um, that exploration and affirmation um, with young people. And I've learned a tremendous amount about myself as well in that process. Um, I think uh, teaching and learning our personal history is, it's also a therapeutic intervention. Um, And I've been able to do that as a a health and English teacher um, as well. And then also creating humanizing school spaces is operating from the power of the relationship, um, not in a manipulative way. I, I've seen um, and maybe even partake in, in that as well as using the, the relationship as leverage to get students, young people to do things um, that I thought was best for them, for sure. But it, it, I think there was an element of manipulation in that. But but unconditional positive regard, um, warm demander, relational therapy, um, those have been really um, important ways of seeing and engaging in my work as an educator, as a school leader, and as a school-based therapist. What, what has been your orienting or guiding kind of frames and theories in, in the work that you do? I love that you started with your mom and just like the journey of how you got here. My social identities and how I relate to them are a huge part of, of why I espouse the frames that I do. So for me, um, I identify as Black um, and Mexican Indigenous descent. My mother is uh, or was African-American um, for generations in California. Um, her great-grandfather moved to um, California from the South at the very, very beginning of the Great Migration. Of black folks um, fleeing the South. So we've had um, several generations in California and due to the um, continuing impacts of escaping slavery um, and ongoing um, anti-blackness in our, in our society, you know, her side of the family was uh, very poor, um, lots of um, intergenerational trauma in the ways that, um, you know, black folks were not really given any space to heal from the trauma of slavery and in fact um, faced, you know, heightened in various forms of um, racist oppression and violence. And um, that meant that um, the, you know, women on my mother's side um, just dealt with so much. And the only coping mechanisms that were really available often were, um, were substances. And so it's, you know, multiple generations of poverty and, and substance abuse. And that, you know, brought my mom into like the, I guess the seventies in, um, Southern California, um, where she met my father who was, um, you know, we call them immigrants, but we also say, you know, the border crossed us. We didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. There's, 
generations of ways that um, North American indigenous people have traveled up and down the land um, prior to colonial imposition of borders. So um, my dad, you know, migrated in the historical way that um, his people have always done um, up from Northern Mexico into um, Southern California and met my mom and um, they forged a bond through trauma, unfortunately, um, and gave birth to um, me and my other three siblings. And I was born in um, Watts, California in the 80s, height of the crack epidemic. And um, fortunately, we didn't actually have um, in our immediate family folks who were impacted directly by crack, but it had impact through the whole region so much more chaos and disruption in the um in the everyday life and so i grew up in um as a poor kid and unfortunately i lost both of my parents by the age of five um so they brought me into the world but then i was parentless and entered the foster care system so i was a foster youth uh black and brown foster youth um very very poor growing up in inner city Los Angeles in the 90s. And the 90s are, at least in that area, known for um, a lot. <laughs> I was nine years old when the Los Angeles um, uprising took place. And I remember being nine, um, looking out from my um, screen door and watching you know, my community burn, my community be on fire. And um, all of these were seminal moments um, in my life that when I was a child, I didn't have the capacity to make meaning of them. But later on, when I did have a space, it deeply informed my politics in how I came to them and how I view the world. In a lot of ways, I perceive myself as someone who grew up in like third world America, right? Where often it's viewed as like, that's what's happening in other countries out there, this level of poverty and the idea of American exceptionalism of like, it's better here. Even the poor people have it better off, but that's not true. And there are like the poor people I think you see on TV. And then there's actually a class that is underneath that. And that's the class that I identify with. And I've been struggling to find what's the right name because <laughs> it's not actually working class because we were not actually, um, consistently housed or consistently employed, right? So it's underemployment and, and a lot of things are characteristic of the of that class. But I remember when I was nine, first of all, I thought the world was over. I thought it was, my world was ending. I was watching everything burn and I was sitting there thinking, I'm only nine. I've never even had my first kiss. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm going to die. <clears throat> yeah. And then the other thing that I saw was that um, the, the National Guard was actually called out. And I remember seeing tanks coming down my street. And that changes you. And I know that there's people that experience that around the whole world. But I think that was one of the things that... Um, when you realize that um, your community is feared... And you're part of a, a group of people that are feared. And those tanks were not sent out to keep us safe. They were sent to keep us in our homes and keep us controlled. And if anyone knows the story of how the uprising began, it was because of um, Rodney King and a, a black man who was brutally 
um, brutally beaten um, by police on national television. And it was played over and over and over. Um, that was a, a societal trauma and systemic violence that I witnessed while experiencing all these forms of like personal, deeply um, personal violence as a, um, as a system youth um, where I didn't have, you know, these buffers that we're talking about, you know, it was just, um, I mean, my siblings were separate, separated at an early age and um, there, there was just a lot that I, that I didn't have. Um, so um, all those experiences are um, in my blood and bones um, and also the experience of um, committing my life first to trying to heal myself, um, trying to make sense of what happened and understand it and um, cultivate the resources that I needed for myself to simply survive. So I'd say from like childhood up till probably somewhere like 25, 26, I was in survival mode and I was simply just trying to survive in this body and figure out what that meant and how to do it. Um, and there's so much, I would say, like literacy, <laughs> if you will, trauma literacy that I um, derived from those experiences because I didn't have a lot of guides. There were people, you know, along the way who supported me, mentors, political mentors, community members who were just loving and, you know, took me under their wing, right? So it was it was an interesting experience. Well, on the one hand, I feel like I was experiencing some of the severe lack and neglect that can happen in this country, right? One of the wealthiest countries in the world, but then you've got kids who don't have food, right? But then I also saw this other part of human nature where there was kindness and generosity and people, even if it wasn't my birth family, but like people who would take you in, teachers. So some of those core people were actually my teachers. And it was a teacher who pulled me aside and said, actually, I need to correct that. It was the school counselor. And he was actually really problematic. <laughs> so I can't give him too much credit. <laughs> but it was a school counselor, Ori, who pulled me to the side and said, you can go to college. Right. I didn't even know that college was a thing because he said, you can go to college. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> That's how much I was not aware of the world outside of that you know, small community. Um, and, you know, back then the narrative was, you know, get out of the hood. That's the way leave it, just leave, you know? And so, um, that was a narrative that I was given. I'm grateful that it allowed me to understand that alternatives could exist. There was a world bigger than just what I was experiencing. I didn't know what that world was, but it gave me some hope, right. And it gave me action motivation for action. But then later on, thankfully, I was introduced to more expansive narratives and able to recognize that that theory is 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 problematic, right? I believe that young people absolutely should have exposure to alternatives. Um, and one of those alternatives could be leaving to go to college. And it all could also be returning, right, to help uplift and heal the community you came from. It all could also mean lots of other things. And I just think we have to, like you said, listen to young people and what their intuitions are and not, and be careful how much we're exerting our own narrative on top of theirs and saying, this is what you should do. 
because most likely that's what you did, <laughs> right? Like, because I did it this way is what you have to do. And that's, that's a fallacy, right? That's a, a danger, I think. But all that to be said, um, there's lots more, but th- those are my core identities. I also identify as queer and growing up as a, a poor person and a black and brown person and a person with indigenous descent, a descendant of African chattel slavery, all those things are core parts of my identities that I live and experience every single day. Even if I'm not actively thinking about it or talking about it, it is infused in my work. And um, I think the biggest um, framework that holds all of that, there's many, like I love all the ones you shared, but um, my my most um, theory that I feel at home within is liberation psychology. And it's the psychology that actually originated um, in third world America, Americas, in Latin America, um, that was also informed by Black and Caribbean psychologists like Franz Fanon, who use psychology as a way of understanding what's happening um, in society and to depathologize marginalized people and say, you know, what if, you know, the, the mainstream psychology is always coming from this top down approach, right? And looking at poor people and looking at symptoms and being like, how do we fix or change the person? And liberation psychology says, what if it's not the people, right? <laughs> that, that need healing. <laughs> it's the society. And it brings so many other things into view that we also know to be true, like interdependence and that people are um, only as well as their society is well, right? We can't separate the two. We can't say, oh, you just need to like heal yourself. But the self is deeply t- interdependent on everything else around it. We also can't say, oh, let's just heal society. Let's fix everything. Individuals are also, right? It's a both and. Individuals are kind of like that ecosystem we talked about in the garden. Like each plant, each person has its particular flavor, right? And way that it both derives and contributes to the ecosystem. So it's a both and. And I think liberation psychology holds that and it challenges mainstream psychology um, in the individualism. Another core thing it challenges is historical amnesia, Um, the tendency that is constant everywhere in our society to want to not look to the past or to act as if certain things happen, didn't happen, you know, or to say, oh, that was in the past, just move on. Okay. At the individual level, we understand that that's gaslighting. If someone hurts you and says, "Um, that was in the past, just, just move on. But somehow it's okay to do that to groups of people. Right. And say, well, why are black people so poor? Like we're going to pretend like slavery didn't happen. That's why we're freaking poor. Okay, (laughs) like what? But you see it through and through. There's a deeply embedded societal resistance to um, to really deeply sitting with the past and allowing that to um, inform our feelings and decisions in the present and how we envision the future. Right. And so liberation psychology says, uh uh-uh. No way. The first form of healing and is to actually um, be able to confront history, the legacy of history. And then the last piece I would say around it is like um, the goal. This is really distinct from mainstream psychology. The goal is not to like reduce symptoms, to merely reduce symptoms or heal individuals. The goal is actually to um, heal society. So to support um, the critical consciousness of individuals and build the capacity within them 
to heal communities and heal society, if that makes sense. So you're you're treating the individual, but in such a way that you're helping them re-enter society, right? Not act as individuals. And it and because of the collectivist view, it also view, uh, involves a lot of um, collectivist intervention. Like, how do we do groups? How do we bring people together? Right? And so even though I didn't have that language back in 2010, I think that what I did with my young people was very much like a liberation psychology intervention. And under that frame, it's also not a, just about therapists, right? It's not, it's like our professional skills, I think, matter, but like, this idea that therapists or counselors are like the end all be all to mental health is also, I think, really misguided. And so from that framework, it holds that teachers, parents, community members, organizers all have a vital role to play in like healing young people and communities and healing historical trauma. So um, and I think that um, when liberation psychology was first sort of like framed, it didn't necessarily have like a gender or disability um, language or frame, but I see um, queer and gender affirming practices as very much a part of it and really important, as well as um, disability justice. Um, and to me, the heart is just of like, how do we meet people where they are, celebrate them, see them as truly valuable, and not just them, but their stories and where they come from and the land, the stories of the land. Um, so all of those are frameworks that I hold within me <laughs> that are definitely not widely, you know, held um, in our school or mental health system, but they are the places at which I try to intervene. First, Candace, thank you for sharing your journey to this work and what what informs you um, in the work of healing and specifically within school spaces. Um, I think it's so important that we engage in our own healing work and we're able to bring, you know, our full selves and our full stories into this work. And, you know, as you were opening um, the, the, the pain and crisis and trauma we experience, I've often heard um, kind of, rushed over because then it creates resilience and oh it's so um and I so deeply appreciate you um being able to pull the learnings from your lived experience into the work that that you're doing in a way that that in, encourages your your own healing in a way that um is supported by your own healing as well and um I think as I heard you speaking this, like finding theories and frameworks that that speak to something we already know is such a beautiful feeling, right? That you, Candace 2010, is already, you know, like constructing community rooted in liberation psychology and in healing justice and like maybe not having that language or, you know, um, even knowing that someone else, you know, in another space and time was developing these ideas as well, um, you were able to, to craft this. And I've seen that again and again in my work as a teacher and as a therapist that uh, it, it's so powerful when we're able, because young people are brilliant and um, uh, just being able to help them articulate something or find a theory or framework that exists um, that that uh, uplifts something they already know um, has is powerful for me. And I've, um, 
and for the young people that I've worked with. And so what I'm trying to articulate is the narrative around trauma. I think this is another duality that I've heard and what guided me towards this work is um, maybe in 2010, 11, I started to hear the conversation and the word around trauma um, making its way into school spaces. And I saw it and heard it explained uh, used as a crutch, I think, to explain or pathologize young people, to explain poor learning outcomes, to explain toxic school culture, to um, explain the, you know, dry, air quote, dropout rates rather than pushout rates or um, our inability as a field to meet like indicators of success. And um, it really didn't sit right with me. And I, I think one of the dualities I really hope that we can continue to um, tease out in education it is that uh, mistaken notion that, that trauma um, creates a, a brokenness that uh, educators need to come in and save um, or fix rather than like, I, I think what is so beautiful about liberation psychology is the, the, the wisdom, the power and potential of us to heal ourselves and to, um, you know, that the brokenness is not our fault, that it is the, the doing of uh, an unjust, unfair system, a broken um, system or a system that was never really designed for healing and wholeness. It's just an inner, such an inner outer experience that I feel like I could write encyclopedias on. <laughs> but just like that a key component of my own healing, and I think this is kind of a word to the wise for educators out there, honestly, and counselors, is like, when I could see the beauty and power in myself and without needing to numb, without needing to deny the the violence of what I experienced, without needing to minimize it, right? Again, this is the power of like trying to sit in dualities and not shrink, right? Shrink any part of it where sometimes I think the push, like you said, is to minimize trauma and thinking that that helps you focus on resilience, right? Um or inversely, you're 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 only seeing the trauma and you're not seeing um, the wholeness, right? And both of those are actually harmful. My trauma teacher, I had an amazing trauma teacher for my um, graduate studies. One of the things he said that really really resonated with me was that there's another layer of trauma where after you experience it, then you're only seen as that right? Like being collapsed into this narrative of brokenness, right? To only be seen in your trauma and not be seen in, in everything else that is true. And I think inversely either, to only be seen in your resilience and never be seen in your pain, right? So anytime we're, it's something, an interrogation we have to, I think, be actively engaged in. And I think that's also what liberation psychology offers is that one of the key practice points is is around praxis. It's around reflection and action, right? Paulo Freire, right? Um, who is a, a, a key thinker who definitely ties in heavily to liberation psychology is that you're in this continual practice of reflecting and acting and reflecting and acting to that your consciousness should be moving. 
So if you still believe the same things that you believe five years ago, you might need to check yourself. You know? <laughs> um, and um, I see that very much like at play here that um, I had to, what I could see all of that in me, right? I could hold how much all that really hurt and the ways that I lost, but I could also see myself as beautiful and powerful in the ways I navigated and that the way I navigated was the best possible way I ever could have navigated that situation. There's a power in that because now instead of projecting onto young people. And so for, for me, when we go back to the frame of like how we often project to young people, you should do this to survive because this is what I did. To me, that's actually potentially a reflection of your own trauma narrative, right? You haven't seen yourself yet fully, right? And you're, and you're, and you're living in this thin sliver of how you coped or survived, right? And then because that's all you have, and that's all you have to offer to young people. So I think there's an inherent call here to what you're saying around like self-healing as a key practice or praxis when we're young, working with young people so that then you can see more nuance in the young person, you know, and I made it a, a freaking do or die commitment <laughs> that every time I walked into that building, I'm going to see what's beautiful in you. Like I was aggressive about it. <laughs> it's like, I was like, with everything that we have against us and everything that you're facing, it is my job. It is my only job to walk into this building and see your power. And again, not in a way that needs to erase the harm, right? But in a way that feeds you and fuels you. Because when you can see that, then there's agency and there's a different kind of choice, right? I could keep doing this maladaptive coping or whatever. I could skip class, but what else could I do? Because I'm beautiful and amazing, right? <laughs> and I, can I say one more thing about that? <laughs> okay. And I, and then tying, because we've been talking a lot about education, but tying into more of the therapeutic concepts, this very much connects to youth de developmental needs, right? Like a young person growing up um, does not fully have the capacity to like, like basically how we develop our identities, our sense of self, our sense of self-concept. All of that is through a process of mirroring and reflection of the important adults around us, i.e. attachment theory. And it's not just the parent. It's really just that community of adults, right? Because historically the way that humans grew up and attached wasn't through a nuclear family. It was through a, a village, right? A community of adults. And so when we're thinking about attachment theory, I think that's also one of the, the frames that needs to get pushed because it's usually only talking about parent-child relationship. But I actually, because of, again, I was someone who didn't have those, like didn't grow up with a nuclear family at all. How could I get to a place in my life that I could actually securely attach, which I can now at this point? right? It challenges these theories. I think it's more about being securely attached to your community <laughs> rather than to this one individual parent. And obviously parents are super important, right? They're high up in that hierarchy, but I do think it's about that. And, um, and as adults in the school building, whether you're a teacher, a counselor, whether you're, you know, the, um, you know, we also need to uplift and you're so good at this or of like uplifting the people in the building who don't necessarily have those like professional titles, right? The custodians, the lunch people, 
they are so critical and often they are from the community and often young people have super close relationships with yeah. them. Right? And they see the strengths or they see the yeah. wholeness in, in our students that, that teachers and uh, other credentialed positions often don't, often aren't don't. able to. Yeah. So I think that's why I would come in with this like dogged, you know, it's hard as all get out here, but I'm gonna, that's my only job. Right. And then that also gave me this precision, you know, um, because as a teacher or clinician, you're inundated, inundated paperwork, notes, this, that, right. Instruction, lesson plan, all those things. Um, and it, and amidst all of that, it's natural to get bogged down and be like, how the crap am I supposed to now have a liberatory pedagogy on top mm-hmm. of all of that? <laughs> and that's what because it's not the on top, it's the under. It's, it's, the, under. it's the under. And, yeah. I, you know, you were speaking about liberation psychology, one of the, the, the tenets or, you know, foundational beliefs in, in, in it is addressing the historical amnesia. And I think the, you know, the history of schooling, there's such an amnesia that exists like in the, the, you know, within the small institution and then on a historical level. And I, what I've seen a trend that really just irks me to no end <laughs> is the, the forgetting or the completely, you know, dropping or doing away with one thing and then fully embracing something else. And we're like just chasing money and ideas and ideas that are often created by people that have never been in schools. They've just like gone through school to get a doctorate and then, you know, done a bit of research. And um, it's just, it's so upsetting. And I think that there's so much to learn in in psychology and therapy that could support um, creating healing and healthy school spaces. And it's interesting and and saddening to me that the one thing that really has um, kind of, uh, you know, stuck the most is trauma. And it's, it's the, I think that the narrative around trauma and around poor, poor people's trauma, uh, you know, historically targeted folks trauma, it, gives it absolves the institution and often the the teacher um or or therapist of of real creating healthy outcomes like this can be the excuse why my classroom is you know running amok or why young people aren't resonating with a, a curriculum or why my culture culture, you know, classroom culture is so incongruent. Um, it's because of the trauma young people have experienced and their families are, you know, experiencing or have experienced. And I, um, it has made me really upset to hear that as the excuse rather than looking within. And f- for me, my uh, you know, I used to sit in staff meetings where we had um, mindful moments or um, and it would get me really upset. And, I, you know, there's so much work that we need to do. We don't have the time to be, you know, like uh, taking a mindful moment. But my my thoughts and feelings around that have really shifted because who are we to engage in, you know, like autoethnography work and, and healing work and get our young people to be vulnerable with us if we're not doing that same work ourselves. And, um, and it has to happen, you know, outside of the school space, but it also 
also has to happen within the school space as well. And I think there needs to be, you know, energy, resource, and time allotted to um, the the adults healing within school spaces as well. And only then when I'm, you know, healed, when I've moved out of my trauma response or my coping mechanisms, um, am I able to fully see the the people in front of me or a situation in front of me? Only then am I able to like assess a need, not from my own trauma and pain um, and lacking, but from a place of, uh, of, of wholeness and potential and, and um, possibility. I feel like that really is a nice way to start kind of pulling in the session because mm-hmm. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm so happy to be here with you, Ori, and so grateful that um we get to do this together. <laughs> um just to like bring us in today, I'm wondering what's bringing you joy in your life right now. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, especially just that duality that we're always holding around being people who are really connected to a lot of the suffering in the world and like what isn't working and needing to be able to perceive that while also like be able to perceive joy and the things that are beautiful in our lives. Um, for me at this time of year, it's always my garden. Yeah. Every morning I have to go out um, before the sun gets too hot and I water and I check on things. And usually that turns into 30 minutes to an hour, sometimes two hours of gardening, depending on how early I'm out there or um, what's going on. And um, it is a real source of um, calm. Like my nervous system really regulates when I see the green and I, um, I'm i just outside and breathing the fresh morning air and hearing the birds singing and then I feel like I get a lot of my deepest lessons from the garden when I see what's going on in there. And um, there's always something, <laughs> there's insects that are, you know, helping. And then some of them were like eating the plants. And just that reminder for me is always like, um, we have hopes, we have dreams, we have visions. Um, and some of it will come to fruit. Um, but some of it won't. And the, there's just a process of like letting go for me every day that is like do the work because it feels good and because it matters. 
while having some ability to like be in impermanence and be like also and that doesn't mean I'm going to get the exact results nature will have its way in the garden and in my life <laughs> and then what comes to be of that um is usually different than what I set out but also still amazing and beautiful so um that's kind of my meditation every time I go out into the garden um Mhm. Right, and I just feel like to me that's probably one of my top frames in this work is like detachment from outcome without detachment from care or detachment from um from work and from um like you said commitment. Um and it also doesn't mean you don't care, like you still hope for the best, you know. <laughs> And something beautiful does come. It just won't be what you miss. That's why praxis is so important. And, uh, you know, we're always operating from this space of crisis. I found there's no time to um, slow down and really reflect upon, create collective meaning around what is happening, what is working, what's resonating, what's responsive, um, rather than reactionary um, how things are landing and then we can kind of take um those learnings into our next you know efforts or into the the evolution of efforts and i I definitely agree that we should not stop thinking about trauma or you know that we need to fully and further explore you know trauma-informed practices and trauma And there's so much other learning from the field of psychology that we can bring into schooling um, and education that that would really support uh, um, healthier school spaces. And like you have control. (laughs) And it's, yeah. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yep, that is exactly, that is exactly. This also connects to um, my story in the work of um, school-based mental health is that um, I'm also a rebel and a rogue, so I don't listen to those things. I know that people say them. I'm aware So I'm like, not like I'm not taking the information. I'm like, okay, I'm aware. And I'm going to like try to and see where there's room. And so I planted my garden way before that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And so this is luck. I'm not going to take full credit. This is luck. And so then my plants were pretty strong. So if you've got tiny seedlings, the the snow is going to just, yeah, it's going to wipe that out. But my plants were actually much more sturdy and stronger by the time the snow hit. So some of the ones that were still small, I have these little um, um, rigs where I like cover and protect them and have some, and the rest were, I was like, you guys got this survival of the fittest, but you got this, you know? And I was out of town and I was like, and I was like, oh, are they going to make it? And I came and there was this big snowstorm, all the things came back. All my plants made it or not even one died. Yeah. So again, like 
I could talk forever about this, but I won't around just like resiliency and what we can put into our young people in our communities when things are good so that when the storm hits and it will, right? How have we been fortified? How are we fortifying ourselves, our children, our communities, our teachers, our counselors, so that they can withstand these storms that are coming into education. Um, whereas I think, unfortunately, often the case is that we wait until something has happened and there's a reactivity there and we're trying to repair after damage has already been done. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah oh my gosh yeah that's such a a deep point and like I said I could (laughs) literally talk forever about this um because I feel like there's also a world and this is not what we see most often, and I think it's a little dangerous to say this, but there is a world where sometimes struggle can actually make stronger. Um, and I say it's dangerous though, because I think if that's the expectation, you can cause a lot of harm, right? Like people shouldn't be forced to, there's a world where, um, I think in a long time in like parenting discourse and education discourse, it was like, um, you know, you just tough it out. Right. And we still see the impact of that narrative with. Oh. Yeah. And my district whole programs were created for black youth, black boys, whole programs were created for Latinx boys. And they thought that that would be the solution to all of the, the ills existing in the schools, but never were they confronting the racist teachers and the racist practice and policies that were within the schools. And, you're not going to, you know, there again is pathologizing. You, you think you're adding this beautiful program, but you're actually saying it's the young person that needs to learn and feel this rather than the adults holding space. Right. But there's a world where um, when that nutriment has been there and people have been and there's community um, network, like you're saying, and there's um, personal practices, but also community practices for how people come together. And that has been really um, cultivated, right? When um, hard things happen, those communities are better able to um, to respond. And if they're able to hold each other through it, I've very, very, very changed. And I actually, um, you know, want to move into talking about kind of like how we came into the work and how it leads us to this podcast 
a little story that I think kind of actually answers that for me. Um, yeah, when I was teaching in 2010 um, in Fremont High School, so um, before I became a counselor, I'm currently um, a therapist. And um, prior to that, I spent 10 years as um, a high school educator um, working in East Oakland. And one of those years, you know, like so many years, unfortunately, we lost a student um, to gun violence. And it was really tragic. Um, and um, I, um, very meticulous joy and um, hard work into building the community in my classroom, period. Right. Because I before I was a teacher, I was a system impacted black and brown youth myself. Right. And so when I came into the classroom, I had an embodied knowledge that whether or not there's like a crisis you can see, um, we're all coming into this space from legacies of um, systemic violence and intergenerational trauma. Like that's my perception of classroom is that that's already in the room <laughs> before anything happens. And so I felt like it was really important for me to be able to do any teaching um, was that we did have a strong, connected um, community of learners. And I spent so much time cultivating that. So I was kind of doing network and I was in at that school in charge of like um, the senior project for the whole graduating class. And we were a small school. So it was my classroom, but it was also, um, it was a whole community of graduating seniors, basically, that I was interfacing with. So he had done all that work and had really close relationships and, um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was a, a relatively safe space. So then when this trauma happened, because those linkages has, had already been created, the young people trusted me um, to to lead them in a process. And so I really stepped in and advocated um, with, alongside, and for the children for there to be different um, moments where we were coming together um, to process, or not even just process, but like feel and share around what happened. Um, we created like community rituals together. Um, it was just an ongoing process of, of leaning into the community um, rather than sometimes when these scary things happen, there can be a way that sometimes we can lean out, especially if like the trauma is too intense and it surpasses the existing like coping mechanisms, then you're going to see much more like dissociating and like pulling away and self-isolating. Right. Um, but because some of those um, foundations were there, um, we really all, all leaned in and I'll save you all the details, but something that stood out to me from that year um, that I want to share is that, um, you know, in East Oakland, the graduation rates at that time were always pretty low. We had a really abysmal um, rate at which we were graduating seniors. And that year of all the students who entered the class with me, um, we had the highest percentage who actually finished and graduated. Right. And so that really, really, I mean, was a huge, um, it was, first of all, transformative for me, um, but it was such a huge learning around what's possible, right? How could that be? Like they, they faced, they lost one of their cohort members, right? It was like literally one of the hardest things that could have happened to that group. 
um, but in the ways that we lean together and supported one another through it, they actually graduated at a higher rate than the other seniors who hadn't had a traumatic event happen to them as a group. And I'm still in contact with a lot of those seniors who are now like entering their thirties. <laughs> so this is an experience of like one of my, there were many, but one of the transformative moments I had as a teacher who centered wellness, mental health, culture, and community in my classroom um, and saw a little bit of what was possible. And honestly, the healing that um, those young people experienced, obviously it doesn't um, take away you know, what happened or the overall struggles in their lives. I don't, I don't want to overstate everyone. that. But, it absolutely does. Um, but it absolutely do does hurt everyone. And I think that's, uh, you know, just coming back to why this podcast and why right now is um, we don't operate as a society from a place of inquiry often. Inquiry isn't valued, you know, anywhere. Um, and so how do we interrupt and shift the culture to um, allowing for inquiry from whatever role we um, we are approaching uh, education and work with young people? And my program, um, one of the, the things that I really uh, stands out to me uh, is in from our uh, group therapy class, and uh, it's just the word wonderment, and it's it's that it's that inquiry curiosity. But uh, to me, the wonderment is like there's also this this implicit knowing that there's like beauty and potential there as well. Like there's this this lens of um, of like enchantedness and and wonderment. Uh, yeah, it's just, it implies that there's possibility and potential. And, and I have, um, I, I love that idea. And I, I have to be 100% honest. I don't always live in that space, <laughs> but, but I am, um, often fed, fed, uh, from it in really valuable ways when, when I do enter into a place of wonderment and so
Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm um, moved and feeling connected to how you came into this work as a young person who was um, impacted by um, a lot of the same issues of the young people that we serve, right? And I just think it's so important that you're here and that people like you are here in the work who can um, speak to it from a place of lived experience. But I love how um, you said you never assume what the young people need. And I think that's such a critical distinction because I've also seen it where that can be, I think, a folly sometimes of when you come from a related experience to your population, that sometimes I see folks that we can overstate our understanding or project, not realize that we're projecting um, from our experiences on the young people. And so um, sometimes I think about, you know, if you're working with youth in public schools, um, there's like different um, ways that different identities will need to to grow to meet that work. Um, and I think it is rightfully elevated that there need to be more, you know, black and brown, queer and trans um, and women teachers and professionals in school mental health. Um, but <laughs> the existing standard is that um, for so long, the prevailing um, narrative of who does that work is not actually us. And a lot of the training, like teacher training and therapist training is often geared towards white professionals. And so it creates, I think, another dilemma where we want to be recruiting and bringing in more folks like us into the work, but the training apparatus is not actually ready for us yeah. and prepared to support us. And if, so I think, yeah. you know, okay. there's a process I could say of so like, much more. Often, you know, like therapists um, and educators need to unpack their whiteness long and um, <laughs> expand their so many, um, views of the world and build imp- deeper so, empathy. So much unlearning for, we have um, to do. And um, I guess what, what I just uh, love um, that we kind of started with and we're ending with is the, the importance of censoring um, young people listening into what it is they need because they hold so much brilliance and wisdom. How do we create those spaces where we... Um, step back and lean in. Uh, and I, I think that that, that is healing. It is so healing to start with, you know, um, where are you at? What are, what are you feeling? What do you need? You know, rather than what, what has happened to you. And, um, I'm excited to hear how, um, we can engage in wonderment with all of these uh, kind of dualities and dilemmas within um, this institution that loves to forget. <laughs> that last piece that you shared was just so mm-hmm. important around like um, being able to tap into our lived experience and our wisdom and what that brings while not projecting onto the youth and really listening to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <sighs> 
Uh -huh. Es pausa. <ríe> Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Peace out. <laughs> yes. <laughs>